on the first evening. Some of you said you had responded to the title of the retreat. Your life is your teacher. And I was just, I was just reflecting a little on the title this afternoon. And, uh, and particularly on the, what we mean when we say your life or my life. If we're interested in our life being our teacher, then it may be helpful to uncover our associations or assumptions about what that is. You might think for a moment, how, what do you mean? What comes to mind? What are the assumptions and associations when you say, when you think about my life? Not my life, right? Your life. So when you consider that to yourself, oh, what is my life? Mostly, or most often, well, unless anybody wants to say, what, what is your life? What are the assumptions that just immediately come to mind? A road. A road. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So a sense of the progression through the territory of my life, along the timeline of my life, through the territory of experience. A road. What else? Challenges, right. right. Yeah, the challenges that we face. What else? What comes to mind? My life. A story, a story. A story right. Yeah. The story of my life, and the, the many stories of my life, the stories that I tell myself that reinforce the sense of, the roles of, the relationships that make up my life. Changes, yeah. How you use your time. How you use your time. Lessons. Uh Interesting. And I wonder, as well as, you know, the few of you that spoke, what come to mind, what else may be in the room. And I also wonder, as well as what's said in this kind of context, and you might wonder for yourself, what are the kind of ways in which, moment by moment, you relate to the sense of my life? My life is something that's very, 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 very precious, central. Right? If my life seems threatened, we go into panic. Body goes into panic if it's uh, threatened. Emotionally, we go into panic. There's a lot invested in my life. There's a lot that we defend around my life. And my life is something mysterious, right? Can't remember the beginning of it. Regardless of the stories about that, my life, the, the experience of my life, whoever the me is, is beginningless. And the experience of my life is endless. We can't imagine or anticipate or have any real conceptual idea really of anything after my life. So here we are in this life that's, uh, even though it's, it's, we have a narrative around its beginning and end, it actually defies the normal sense of time. 
mostly, it seems, the way we habitually relate to and define and then defend and protect and reinforce the sense of my life. Tends to be in terms of our activities, right? the activities of my life, what I do, feeds a lot of the narrative of my life. Another way we ask people that, you know, hello, what's your name? What do you do? Right? Oh, because then I know something about your life. Our roles. Right? Parent, lover, child, daughter, etc., etc. And the way we, um, that we relate through those roles tends to give us a lot of sense about my life. And the meaning-making that we do. The way we position my life in some uh, wider sense of life itself. The beliefs that we have about life. Our cosmology. Personal cosmology, what I believe about life, which is mostly going to be an inherited cosmology. The religious beliefs of one sort or another whether those are some of the classic religions or maybe some fringe religion that you may adhere to, or whether the stealth religion of science. I say stealth because science presents itself often as a kind of non-religion or an anti-religion, but it shares an enormous amount of characteristics with every other religion. It has a... a, uh, a creation myth called the Big Bang, which interestingly enough, I don't know if you've seen recently, that uh, the latest examination of the universe suggests that maybe there never was a Big Bang. And the latest scientific sense is oh, maybe time is beginningless. I nearly spat out my coffee when I... Oh, fantastic! <laughs> And yet, like, like religion, like any other religion, science presents its creation mythology as if it's true. That's what religion does. It doesn't say, oh, we've got a creation mythology. It says, this is how things started. Right? In the beginning there was whatever, nothing, and then God said, let there be something, and that's how life started. Or there was absolutely nothing, and then there was a big bang, and suddenly the whole universe was there. And that's how things started. So our, our beliefs about the nature of life, even though we might not give those things much conscious thought, our sense of my life is very much bound up. It's bound up with our roles, it's bound up with our relationships, it's bound up with our activities, and it's bound up with the way we assume ourselves to be in relationship to the larger sphere of life. So whatever beliefs we have about what the meaning of my life is, or the purpose of my life, or what is going to happen at the end of my life, or what condition I existed in before this life. And the way those beliefs, or one's kind of cho- uh, conscious non-belief in any of those things, which is an equally a sort of personal cosmology, So all of that informs the sense of my life. And yet, unfortunately, none of those things are very good at being our teacher. 
There's a limited amount, very limited amount, that we can learn from just our looking at our uh, at our beliefs and our activities. The, when we look at the kind of the outer expressions of our life, it's like we see. It's like it's like uh, we're seeing, and we see whatever problems we may have, or whatever struggles or challenges or changes, like some of you said, there may be. But we don't really see how to very significantly um, manage those things. It's like we might see the problem of anger, for example. And I don't, I don't want to be angry, I want to be kind. But if I just see, oh, anger keeps showing up, and that's as far as I look, if I just look at the outer expressions of anger, I can't do much about it. I mean, have you, you could try, and try to decide not to be angry anymore. I'm not going to be angry anymore. Or I'm not going to think about such and such anymore. Or I'm not going to think at all anymore. Maybe you tried that in meditation. Right? Oh, we see a thought is there, and thought goes in all kinds of different directions. Okay, I'm going to stop it then. In fact, thought's quite a good example for that. For seeing how we can recognize the, pro the outer expression of what's happening. We can notice how things are showing up in my life. But if we haven't really understood the root of them, if we haven't looked right back to see the, the, the way that's happening, the, the what's feeding that, we don't have much chance to affect any change. And if we look at the different types of thought, for example, in the way that you've no doubt been noticing your thought processes these days. So firstly, there's just that kind of um, sort of random, what seems like randomly generated rubbish, right? Just snippets of this and that, things I remember, things I'm anticipating, and comments about what's going on right now. Just try not to do, try not to have any of those. Doesn't work. And so we're asked to look not at that level of just what's, you know, what's already what's showing up and has already got a grip on us. We're asked to, in a way, we, we could call in. in this practice, put our life under the microscope. I often think of this practice as one of putting our life under the microscope. If we want our life to be our teacher, rather than just looking at the, the roles and activities, we need to look as closely as possible. It's a bit like cholera in Victorian times. And people didn't know what caused cholera because they didn't have microscopes. They didn't know that it was due to bacteria, so they didn't know what to do to prevent it. It never occurred to anybody that washing their hands, for example, might affect the spread of cholera. I may have got that quite a bit historically wrong, but there's something about some disease in some previous time that people didn't know much about until microscopes were invented. So you'll have to bear with me on the lack of precise historical detail.
And then, oh, microscopes opened up this whole new realm of understanding what's actually going on right at the more at the relevant level at the generative level oh this is giving rise to that that's why these outer expressions are happening and then there you have some uh, you know you have the insight from seeing the more close up granular level of what's happening and you have the possibility to do something about cholera or whatever it was so here we're putting our life under the microscope. And we do, we're doing that, we've been doing that so far in this, w- with this sense of what I've been calling in different ways, great simplicity. And just this interface of awareness and experience. We've been using this simplest, or to continue the ana- analogy, this sort of microscopic level of experience, right? Just b- basic, most basic body sensations we can find. Basic aliveness of body and the subtle sensations of the rhythm of breathing. And one could say, well, I thought my life was going to be my teacher, but all I'm now it's turned out it's just my breath. And yet, There's something about that uh, going under the microscope, we could say, that looking very close up at our experience, as getting as close to experience as possible. And then, of course, if you just think back over the last 48 hours, what have you been noticing? However, you may have been very sincere and diligent with just attending to body and breath, attending to body and breath. But in that process of putting one's life under the microscope, one starts to notice all kinds of other things. One starts to notice one's thought life, for example. Those, those ran- seemingly randomly generated thoughts. And the first tendency is, oh, I want to, we want to deal with it on the level at which we notice it. Reminds me of Einstein's quote, you, uh, talking about physics, what does he say? A problem can never be solved on the level that it's created at. <laughs> An advocate for the microscope. So, but first, the impulse is, oh, oh, I see the thought, I see the anger, like somebody was just speaking about. I want to deal with it on the level it's, that I've noticed it at, so I try to stop the thought. And then I get frustrated because the thought won't stop. Or if it does, it's very quickly replaced by another thought. So the encu- that encouragement of to be rather close, awareness and experience. We start to notice something, we might start to notice something about what, in the same way that the bacteria are noticed to be giving rise to the disease, are what's giving rise to those randomly generated thoughts very worthwhile to look to see what's giving rise to it. Partly, what's giving rise to randomly generated thoughts is just habit energy. Right? The habit energy of being stimulated and making sense of what we're stimulated by and just getting into a kind of um, a semi-comfortable habit of that. Uh, 
cogitating. I say semi-comfortable because when we actually really attend to it, when we put our life under the microscope, we find that it's not actually very comfortable. And more primarily than that, what's giving rise to those randomly generated thoughts is the sort of basic, doesn't sound very glamorous, but the basically neurotic need to constantly create a reference point to reinforce the idea that I am someone. Oh, this happened to me. Oh, I, I like that. I like that. Oh, I wish I was doing such and such. Oh, gives a sense. I wish I was doing such and such right now. Gives a sense of self, a sense of time, a sense of space, a sense of doing. Oh, yeah, okay, I know where I am now. And even though those random thoughts that keep on coming maybe don't have much pull or charge or relevance, and sometimes one might look at them and think, what, why am I thinking about that rubbish? Well, if one looks closely, microscopically, carefully, one notices, oh, I'm doing it just to reinforce a familiar sense of self. I'm doing it because even though I came on a meditation retreat saying I wish I could have some peace and space, actually, when peace and space really show up in our minds, maybe a little bit at the beginning where we think, oh, lovely, but then quite quickly we go, oh my God, I feel very disorientated. I don't know what to do with peace and space. I know what to do with a lot of clutter, a lot of thought, a lot of reference points, a lot of ideas of past and future and better and worse and like and don't like and here and there and me and you and stop and go. It's interesting that we kind of long for peace and space. Especially in the run-up to a retreat, when we tell each other, oh, I'm so looking forward to some peace and space. Or in the run-up to the weekend, when we say, oh, I so need some peace and space. Then what do you do when the weekend comes and you've got some peace and space? You just immediately fill it up. Right? Soon as we actually have some space that opens up, right, what can I do with it? So our practice asks us to gently start to get familiar with the space around those random thoughts, with the space of awareness in which those thoughts keep taking birth and fascinating us. So that rather than just usual pattern, either believing in all the thoughts or the other usual pattern, trying to stop the thoughts. We're actually looking underneath the content of the thought. And we're starting to look at the nature of the thought, the support for the thought. The support of trying. And most people go on trying their entire lives, rather exhaustingly, of trying to persuade oneself that I'm real. must be real because I've got a lot of thoughts about things, things I relate to, things I want, things I like, things I, places I'm going, etc, etc. I'm not trying to take any kind of philosophical position about whether I am real or I'm not real, but 
definitely the encouragement to look closely, to look closely enough to feel and to and find the space below thought. To look at mind, experience, through the microscope of our practice. Then there are those other thoughts that are not just randomly generated, not just uh, sort of blah, 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 blah. the thoughts that really grab the attention, the thoughts that one can't let go of, the thoughts that however many times I let go of them, it's the same thought that comes back again. Obsessive thought. Obsessive thought about him or her or that time or that place or if only or whatever it might be. Obsessive thoughts where one's locked onto some, usually some fantasy, it's very, becomes very obsessive, or some, um, um, somebody that one's hurt by, or upset with, or angry with, or lusting after, or etc., etc. Some compulsive thought form. Why do I, we might say, do thoughts arise compulsively? What happens if we just try to deal with the compulsive thought on the level that it arises? Either we just go on obsessing and obsessing until we're exhausted and frustrated, or we unsuccessfully try to somehow uh, cut off the thought, distract from the thought. So we start to sense it to well, if we have this vision of a, a looking, putting our life, putting this thought form under the microscope of our practice, what does it show us? What gives rise to the compulsive or obsessive thought? And then we start to notice the, whatever the unresolved emotional layer is. Always, always with obsessive thought, compulsive thought. Thoughts turning around the scenario as if I could solve it on the level of the story that it's about, what he did, what she said. But actually, the reason it keeps on coming back is it's trying to uh, have us pay attention to the undigested hurt or anger or frustration or resentment or need or longing or love. rather a shame that we pull and pushed around by our compulsions, reinforcing them, following them all over the place. And meanwhile, the emotion that's driving them is kind of just crying out for some care and attention. And then there are those thoughts, well, I won't go on and on about thoughts, but those thoughts that are not just random, not particularly obsessive and charged like that, but the thoughts that are busy evaluating. Evaluating oneself, evaluating others, evaluating one's practice, evaluating the place, evaluating me and Bibka, evaluating each other. Ah yes, he's like this. Oh, she's like that. 
Oh, she's so... Oh, I'm such a... Oh, why can't I be more? Those thoughts that have, in the evaluation, a certain uh, rigidity to them, a harshness to them, that come along with the belief that I know. I know what I'm like. I know what you're like. I know what he's like. I see what she's like. And in the midst of it, and very often on retreat, people would say, oh, God, I keep having these, these you know, terrible judgments about people. And one doesn't want it. One doesn't want to be mean-spirited. One doesn't want to be judgmental. One doesn't want to carve things up in that kind of crude and clumsy uh, way of evaluating. But hey, try to just stop doing it. It doesn't work. You can't resolve the habit energy. You can't resolve the activity on the level at which you're noticing it. So you start to get curious. Well, what's driving it? What am I trying to do? What's giving rise to that evaluation? And please, see for yourself if you notice yourself caught in that. And you might find that there's a kind of insecurity underneath, a fear underneath of not being enough, a kind of neurotic attempt to establish some feeling of okayness either by trying to persuade oneself that one's okay and that others aren't, or by telling oneself one isn't okay and pressurizing oneself to somehow improve, improve, improve until some mystical imagined place where I'll somehow become okay. So... All of that was somewhat of an aside to this idea of attending closely, this idea of uh, letting our practice be a way of putting our life under the microscope so that it can be our teacher. So if we come back from the various ideas about what my life is, the roles of my life, etc. If we look at I was again I was reflecting this afternoon how does the buddha describe what my life is and there's he describes my life in other words my what we've been calling my experience right what we referred to earlier as the irreducible ground of experience he describes as having five basic components called nama rupa or panchakanda for those of you who grounded in Buddhist teachings. First, the, just the physical aspect of experience, right? sensory life. And you don't have to remember these different five as I say them particularly, but just to see if you can track in your own experience as I'm speaking about it. So sensory life. Right? This, the way this sensitive organism just sees, hears, Feels, etc. And then, second aspect of my life, as it's actually, right, not as it's conceived or imagined or reinforced through thinking, but as it's actually lived, second aspect of my life, the, the way experience impacts me. It's pleasant or it's unpleasant 
or it's neutral. Right? And I'm pretty sure that's it. Right? Everything you've ever experienced has one of those flavors. Just naturally. Right? It's not about... Um, it's not about uh, what we're doing with that. There's just a natural, completely automatic impact that experience has. Right? We tend to notice it strongly if it's very pleasant, the impact of what we're seeing or feeling or hearing. We tend to notice it also very, very clearly if it has a very strong, unpleasant impact. Right? Then the, the, we feel the unpleasantness of that. And we tend to not notice it so clearly when the impact is neutral. So, for example, the sensations in your elbows right now. I don't know how they are, but they're probably, unless you're digging them into the ground, they're probably the sensations in your elbows are neutral right now. So they tend not to impact. If you go there, can you feel your elbows? You may or may not be able to. But you can get a sense if you feel into, if you can't feel your elbows, try somewhere else nearby, right? And you can find that, oh, neutral experience, we tend to just gloss over it. It's sort of there in the background, but it doesn't attract our attention. And even when our attention does go there, we don't see much interest in staying there, usually. Whereas pleasant experience, oh, that does attract our attention. And we see a lot of interest in staying there. Right? Naturally, we like the pleasant, and so it attracts the attention. We barely notice the neutral, which is not very interesting, it doesn't attract the attention. And then unpleasant experience, it attracts the attention, but with the, with, we're attracted by fixating on what's wrong with it and the natural desire to move away from it. So that's the second aspect of experience. Sensory experience, and then it's, it's affect. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Hmm. Third aspect of experience these five things that make up my life or experience perceptions right so we have some there's this sensory organism right open to the field of experience some unpleasant experience for example arises in the knee while i'm sitting here some heat some pressure some density and then there's a, the perceptual apparatus that's able to say oh that's an unpleasant experience in my knee, right? I don't like it. Or actually how it would normally just fit together, my knee hurts. So when we sit here and we say, oh, my knee hurts, all of those things are coming into play, right? There's the sensory organism that's registered a sensation. There's the affect, in this case, unpleasant. And then there's the perception, my knee, right? Which is kind of... Organized the sensation into a sense of possession as a part of my body and uh, an experience that I don't like. My belongs to me. Knee, this thing as if it's solid, right, even though it's just part of this sort of fluid field of sensation. My belongs to me. Knee, thing, hurts, don't like. Right. 
fascinating. Oh, you just sit here going, oh, my knee hurts, oh, my knee hurts, oh, how long should I sit for, oh, my knee hurts. But we're invited, wow, this, this is my life, sensory life, affective life, perceptual life. And this can be known and seen in real time. We might say, well, so what? Why? I just want to move it because it hurts. So bear with me. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll see why. Fourth aspect. Sankara in the Buddhist language means um, the, the, the and each, each level, as you can see, it's kind of crystallizing the sense of experience into something that seems more solid and more real. Sankara means the, the constructs, the, the, um, the, the, the putting things together. Right? It's what turns the, the perception, oh, my knee hurts, into that sort of lines it all up and relates it to life. The my actually references something, the, the the sankara, the construct, the sense of self that that refers to. Right? Ni, oh, the sankara, the construct of the way that fits together with a view I have about uh, my body, with hurts. That fits together with actually a construct of time and space. It hurts in time. I want to stop it hurting, etc. And then the fifth element, consciousness. Right? There's, this, there's a consciousness that's registering all this. Registering this sensory field that we call body. Registering these different affects, unpleasant, pleasant or neutral. Registering the perception, oh, knee hurts. And registering then the construct, the one who believes, uh, who has the, has the sense of my knee and the problem and, then the, wi- and the wish to do something about it, etc., etc. This, I would suggest, I'm borrowing from the Buddha, but I would suggest this is my life. Sensory experience, affect, perceptions, constructs, consciousness. What makes for liberation? Somebody once asked the Buddha, and he said, the five aggregates, the panchakanda, these five aspects of experience. He said, no, this is, what's the difference between a normal, unlearned, untrained person and a liberated being? But he said, the life of a normal, untrained, unlearned person is these five aspects of experience affected by clinging. Right? Cling to the sensory awareness, my body. We cling to the pleasant and the unpleasant, what I like and what I don't like. We cling to the perceptions, my knee hurts. We cling to the construct. Right? I'm this one who has this knee. And I've got all kinds of problems with it and I need to do something about it. And we cling to the consciousness as if it's some kind of property of the self, my mind, my consciousness. And then, of course, you've got a lot of my practice. A lot of the hard work of being here, a lot of the hard work of meditation. 
rather simple, I think we were saying yesterday, just sitting around quietly, walking around quietly. And what makes it such hard work sometimes? It's the sense that I'm doing it all. That it's my body and my mind and my feelings and my life. So, what makes for, what's the difference, right? Better get to the punchline, the other part. For a liberated being, the Buddha says, these five elements of experience, unaffected by clinging. Natural, sensory field of experience that we call body. Natural, fluid, changing um, field of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experience. The natural capacity to recognize and name what's happening. Right? Natural capacity to link ideas and make sense of it in a, wo- in a way that we can communicate uh, and, and explore. And this natural, extraordinary property of consciousness. Unaffected by clinging. Unconfined by ideas of somebody who's doing it. In other words, unconstrained by the sense of being a self in a world. So as we do this microscopic practice, I bring our attention back to being as close up to life as possible, as intimate as possible, as sensitive just to body, breath, this moment, the awareness that's here. We have the opportunity to see these natural processes unfolding and to see the clinging or absence of clinging. We have a natural preference, of course we do, for the pleasant. It's not to suggest that we kind of have some sort of lobotomized relationship with experience. Oh, now things are pleasant, just pleasant, just natural process. Oh, now things are unpleasant, just natural process. It doesn't sound very lively, it doesn't sound very liberated. Sounds like a flat line. No, we, we can enjoy and delight in the beauty, the sweetness, the, the sensualness of the pleasant. And we can face the inevitable in everybody's life, yours and mine and the Buddha's, everybody's life, the inevitable unpleasant loss. Grief, discomfort, Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) In some way that we're not just making, we'll leave Trump out of it, but that that we're not making that inevitable uh, loss, grief, discomfort, um, unwelcome conditions, Donald Trump. That we're not making those unwanted conditions into a whole personal drama. 
And actually, then, one's much more able and available to respond skillfully to the unpleasant, to the inevitable grief, loss, discomfort that we all must face in life. So this this way of what we've been calling you know, cultivating awareness, coming to the interface of awareness and experience, it's to know these tastes or these aspects of experience, to know them and explore them, to see them and to handle them. To when the Buddha talks about uh, mindfulness, it's, there's these two qualities, vitaka and vichara. I'm being very Buddhist this afternoon. Vitaka is the pointing directly at experience, right? When you bring your attention back, right? sometimes it's described as the finger that's pointing at what's happening. Oh, body's like this. Right? Oh, body's like this. And then the vichara is described as the, like, more like the palm of the hand that holds, that handles, that uh, feels, that weighs. It's like if you're getting a piece of fruit, right, or an avocado. And first you point, oh look, there are the avocados, vitaka, right? And then you oh, pick it up and give it a little squeeze and see if it's firm or ripe. Ah, oh, that's the vichara. The vitaka is, what it, what's happening? What's happening? Right? Noticing, pointing at, finding out what's happening. And then the vichara is, how is it? How is it affecting me? How, is it, how am I meeting the experience? Right? What is the experience? Vitaka. How am I meeting it? Vichara. And so that's as, as, as we deepen into the retreat, right, as you start, even though mind may feel like it's wandering a lot, you actually already developed more power of attention than you even realize, maybe. Like somebody here was saying earlier about having a particularly busy mind, and then we were recognizing together, it's not that the mind is particularly busy since you arrived, more that the level of awareness has increased, so you notice that busyness. So as you settle into the days here and the practice here, as you start to become more skillful with your attention, just to see how you can both point at what's happening, oh, what is this experience right now, and start to handle, explore, feel into, find out about your uh, reactivity towards, or lack thereof, the experience find out where one's clinging or not clinging. Find out through feeling the tension patterns and, oh, and then handling them. Do I need to do that? What happens if I soften? Oh. Finding out about experience, or we might say letting life be our teacher in this microscopic way. Otherwise, you know, 
We can change our activities, we can change our roles, we can try to manage our life on the level of its expressions and activities. But, as the book title says, wherever you go, there you are. Or as one of my friends often says, the way you tend to do anything is the way you tend to do everything. We can try to change our activities. We can try to change our mind. We can try to change our thoughts. We can try to change our behaviours. But the, if we haven't understood what's giving rise to, if we haven't seen where the clinging is, then those things are fairly unlikely to affect real transformational change. So, in a way, that's just the question I want to leave you with at the end of these reflections, or the, the two questions. What's happening? And how are you meeting it? What is this? Right now. And how is this? If we let that get too big, what is this? Right? If we try to answer it philosophically, we'll, we'll get lost in conception. So we start basic. This. What is this? That's why we establish our breath, body, immediacy. That's why in the posture this morning we're speaking about ground, brightness, Openness, oh, relaxation. So don't be afraid to be simple in your practice. When we ask ourselves, what is this? See if you can start with the simplest expression of what is this. What's the simplest, most direct aspect of experience that you can find right now? What's actually happening here? And how am I meeting it? These two questions, this vitaka and vichara, this noticing and handling, this finding and exploring, these can last us a lifetime. So while these precious conditions are here, and this precious opportunity is here. And while sensory life and affective life and perceptive life and conceptual life and conscious life are all just going on. Please make the good use of exploring. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.